millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Bruno. And I'm Ben. And this is the New Statesman's Politics Podcast. Today we're going to be looking at some of the biggest elections taking place around the world in 2024 and their implications for democracy. Hello, I'm Anoush Shikelian, Britain editor at The New Statesman and host of this podcast. And joining me down the line, I have New Statesman foreign correspondent Bruno Masaich, who has written the upcoming cover story on the year of voting dangerously. Also joining down the line is senior data journalist Ben Walker. 2024 is set to be the biggest election year in history. Countries with more than 4 billion people will be sending their citizens to the polls. Last week on the podcast, we had a look at how elections would shape Britain in 2024. And now we're going to turn our attention to some of the other political forces at play around the globe. So we'll start with the US, because that's probably the one that's on um, most of our listeners' minds after the the UK general election, which we expect will probably take place this year. Um, That's due in November. Um, Ben, uh, who are the key candidates we should be watching and how are they polling at the moment? You've been looking at the polling closely. Uh, who are the key candidates? The ones we had last time, really. It's uh, the, the, all no change <laughs> here. Um, Joe Biden, of course, the incumbent is uh, all indications, despite some some pressure from some uh, sections last year to, to, to see him step down. Um, he's he's going to, obviously going to be the Democratic incumbent, the, second, the new candidate. And of course, Donald Trump, who is presently cruising to a sort of easy win amongst his Republican base. And this is, this is what we need to know about the Republican base. It's not what it used to be 10, 15, 20 years ago. It's a completely different voter now. It's, it's a lot more um, conservative is the wrong word. Populist, populist is probably probably better. It's, it's type types of voters who are a bit more reactionary, who aren't necessarily economically right wing, but socially so absolutely. And um, Trump among this 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 rather reactionary base is cruising to a steady win. If you look at uh, five thirty eight, uh, their their own polling averages. My my goodness, Trump's on like sixty something percent. There's no debate on who's going to get the nomination. You'd think perhaps his um, you know being removed off the Colorado ballot. So you know when the presidential election comes, he's not going to be on the ballot. People in Colorado are not going to be able to vote for him. Um, you'd thought that might have changed something, but um, it doesn't doesn't seem to have done anything there. It seems quite, if you look at the polling, he's gone up from, from around about 40 to 60 and he's just stayed there for months on end. Um, and then you have other people, and we, we like to try to make great hay of the other candidates. You have um, Nikki Haley, who's, well, really, she surged from 4% last month to 
8% now, which really, when you consider Trump's on 60%, isn't telling you much, is it? So so it's going to be Biden versus Trump again. And if, if I may just say, I know we're recording this in January, the first few days of January 24, the elections in November. And um, I, w- I would say this, that not to be a snobby Brit, but US polling isn't amazing. And it, it, ha- it hasn't been for quite a while. There's a lot of pollsters, a lot of market research firms, and the dedication to publishing the data tables, the transparency, you know, the follow-up questions isn't perhaps as great as it is in the UK. In the UK, we have something called the British Polling Council. If you if you want to be, you know, like respected by people like Britain Alex, you 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 publish the data tables so we can see the questions, so we can see the sampling, so we can see what you've done. Um, and those are the pulses I give credence to. I don't give credence to anyone else. In the US, there's no real regulation like that, and it's not real. It's not really even a regulation. It's just quite a a free for all and a, you know a gentleman's agreement they don't have that in america and 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 as such the polling is a bit too varied and sometimes you just don't know the question wording that 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 is actually put to to put to respondents put to the sample and it's very quite quite frustrating indeed um so what i would say this this far out u.s presidential election polling is a bit poor it's not it's not entirely a great predictor nevertheless um the feeling felt towards president biden is poor um, if you compare how Biden polls to you know, Trump, Obama, uh, Bush, or all, all, all the rest of them, he's not doing particularly great. And the reason he's not doing great is because his base isn't that enthused with him. And there's a lot of voter uncertainty right now amongst those that back Biden. Let, let's not forget, Biden won off a coalition of votes, coalition of um, you know black conservatives, moderate voters, as well as liberals who were willing to swallow the fact that he wasn't Bernie Sanders, he wasn't Elizabeth Warren. They were willing to all coalesce around him for the primary purpose of defeating Donald Trump. Now that was 2020. That was when Trump was president. That was when Trump was the incumbent. Where you know, if you, if, you, if you're dissatisfied with the status quo, you can vote for Biden. We don't have that now, and um, there are plenty of Americans out there who really sort of see Biden as not handling things well. So much so that they're either not voting altogether, uh, and then they they used to be Biden supporters, or they're switching to Trump. Very few of them, but they do exist, and that's why um, the polling for Biden personally isn't great. And though polling this far out isn't accurate, it does suggest Biden's got a bit of a, a bit of a challenge going up because being not Trump was enough in 2020, but I don't know if it's going to be enough in 2024. Great. Thanks, Ben, for taking us through the landscape in terms of polling. And Bruno, Ben mentioned Colorado, the state of Colorado ruling um, that Trump is ineligible to hold office and, and the state of Maine has made the same decision. I mean, how likely is it that more states will follow? And is there any scenario in which he might be disqualified from running at all, do you think? It seems from the news yesterday that Trump is appealing to the, to the Supreme Court. Um, I think he was worried not particularly about Colorado, but about other states uh, and that this could spread. Mm. Uh, I expect the Supreme Court to strike down these disqualifications from the states for, you know, for legal reasons that there's still Trump has, has been indicted, but it hasn't been uh, uh, there hasn't been a verdict from a court accusing him of subverting the constitution or uh, rebellion, which is what is being discussed. Now, I think there are also political reasons. People are genuinely uncomfortable, even people on the left, with the idea that a candidate could be disqualified. Yeah. Uh, Rick Grinnell, who may well be uh, Trump's next secretary of state, compare what happened in Colorado to what, what's happening in Pakistan, where Imran Khan, the former prime minister, has been disqualified from running for the next election. 
And, you know, you made a point that I think people on the left have to agree to some extent that if this happened in another country, uh, about which people wouldn't know, necessarily wouldn't know much, uh, the reaction in the West would have been that uh, this is the usual uh, attempt to subvert democracy by disqualifying the opposition leader, which our Trump obviously is. So I think many people would be uncomfortable with that idea. On the other hand, um, I think we have to agree with those who look at what happened in 2020. See, Trump uh, tried to uh, upturn the result of the election, uh, not only with January 6th, about which there's still a lot of debate, but with those phone calls uh, to Georgia, uh, trying to influence uh, election officials to change the results. And then you have to ask if he did that when he was not involved. What can he do if he is the next president? And will the U.S. still have three elections in 2028? Uh, Robert Kagan published a, a very controversial piece in the Washington Post saying this is the end of American democracy. And I don't think we should last. Uh, I met a couple of think tankers uh, uh, in, in D.C. Uh, two weeks ago, and I was still arguing that the U.S. has a robust democracy that has proven itself over decades, centuries, and uh, and they, uh, they kind of laughed and, and saying, this is uh, the debate from four years ago. But now we have to realize and confront the real possibility that Trump will have no obstacles left at that point. And he will have a kind of drive to, to change the system and to perpetuate his power. So to give you an example, uh, do we know that Trump won't run for a third term? Why not? Uh, will the Supreme Court be able to face him? Will he respect the decision from the Supreme Court on this? Mm. Uh, he's been quite outspoken about how this time around it's about uh, populating the administrative state, as he calls it, with uh, his own loyalists. So I think the moment is very dangerous and we're faced with the typical predicament of democracy that makes us think of Weimar Germany, where do you sort of use the constitution to exclude these anti-democratic forces or do you prefer to uh, sort of uh, gamble that you'll be able to defeat them democratically. I think that's what the United States is right now. And you've talked about the implications for American democracy. How about the implications for democracies around the world? Because you make the point in your cover piece about how there's a tendency in the West to see Western democracies like the US as a sort of model for other countries to follow. But you're saying that that um, norm or at least that assumption just cannot be relied upon anymore. Yeah, this has puzzled me for a long time. I remember when um, Mike Pompeo, Trump's Secretary of State, he uh, was um, quite schizophrenic how he dealt with the question of democracy. Because when he traveled around the world, he was this, still the traditional American official, foreign policy official, talking about the importance of the free press and talking about respecting electoral procedures. But then when he's back home, he was attacking the press as being enemies of the people. Uh, and he was supporting Trump in many of his uh, attempts to uh, overturn the election result. And I think this is the contradiction that many people still live in. Even Robert Kagan in his piece uh, will say that America is on the path. He makes it sound like the inevitable path to autocracy. But then he thinks American global leadership is still important. So is he actually arguing that an autocratic America should still be a global leader? Uh, or do countries around the world have to start worrying with a scenario where the U.S. Uh, and American power, which was in many respects tolerated or welcomed 
because of the strong nature of American democracy, if that goes away, I think the, our reaction towards American power will have to change. So this is not just about uh, what happens domestically in the US, uh, it's about the current world order as well and how the changes in America will necessarily force changes in, in how in the distribution of power globally. Yeah, absolutely. And let's move on to Russia. There will be presidential elections, if you can call them that, um, in March this year. Putin's been president since 2012. Um, he will be running for re-election and he can do this because he made constitutional amendments so that he could do so, like you were describing, Bruno, might happen under Trump if he if he gets in again. Um, ben, you were talking about the paucity of American polling. Is there anything that we can glean from public opinion in Russia that will tell us how people truly feel about the war or about about how they feel about Putin and his reputation? Yeah, yeah. The, the, there was the, there was a stretch of thought, I think, in the immediacy of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine last uh, in 2022, um, when people kept saying, "Ah, oh, well, you can't trust any public opinion polls in, in in Russia because there aren't any." Because, well, there's there's a fear factor of you know if you're declaring an opinion to an opinion poll, you're telling the truth, and um, other issues that you know kind of what would you say suffocate uh, genuine public feeling um there is there is perhaps some some truth in that but i don't think it's a, an easy excuse to say you know russian public opinion is generally quite occasionally nationalistic it, it, that the, the there is that the reality we, we have to sort of ex- accept so um when it comes to opinion polls for the presidential election um i don't really think they're worth any damn i think we know what the result is going to be uh vladimir putin's going to cruise to a to a re-election victory um <laughs> by whatever margin but i would just notice this um when the war in Ukraine began. You did have some people try to go into Russia, try to get some decent quality data from the Russian public, try to make it representative of actual feeling. And the truth of the matter is that that I think um, Westerners like us perhaps need to realise is that there is actually quite a bit of support for the what was the special military operation how there was there was a bit of a there was some nationalistic fever there there was a, a sense of that that does exist in Russia you know Putin didn't win you know hasn't always won via you know rigging, rigging votes there has been that feeling in Russia that has been pro him for a you know at the start at least and so this idea that the Russian people are waiting to sort of, you know, see see him out, I think is for the birds. Nevertheless, there is undoubtedly a, I don't know, a roundabout between a quarter to a third of the Russian public who do not, aren't best keen on him, who do want to see him out. And uh, there were some uh, parliamentary elections a few years back in, I think it was 2021, when... Um, uh, Navalny urged uh, everyone to vote tactically. So, you know, in one seat, you should vote for this candidate, a really nationalistic candidate. In another, you should vote for the Communist Party candidate, who were just as nationalistic, really. Um, and uh, this was the way to, you know, deal Putin a blow and, and all the rest of it. And a lot of Russians did feel like they could do that, did do that, although that was one instance where, you know, the, the end result was, in, in certain seats in Moscow particularly, um, the, the result was a far cry from how people cast their ballots. Now, if you want to oppose Putin in, in Russia, you're not going to be like, you know, a, a copycat. Well, you're not going to be a copy and paste job of a liberal in the West. You're going to be, you know, you could be right wing. You could be quite nationalistic as well. And you could could be something else. Um, and, and that's that's what we saw in those parliamentary elections, which didn't you know bear out 
to, to hit Putin at all. Um, but 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 in in to, to get to, to get back to the issue, um, no, Putin's going to cruise to a re-election. Um, whatever polling we have there. Thanks, uh, Bruno. Do you think anything? will be different this time round, not necessarily in the election result, but do you think anything among the Russian public and Putin's standing has changed? I think he's having more difficulty um, orchestrating the internal consensus between different forces um, because there's now an emerging uh, opposition from the right, nationalist opposition that thinks he's not being tough enough and uh, that he should have uh, finished the war by now. So that makes it more difficult for him uh, within the elite circles to make everyone happy. But it's not a democratic question for Putin or for Russia. Now, many people still argue that the turnout numbers might be poor and they are somewhat more difficult to falsify. And if turnout is incredibly low, they'll be seen as a, as a blow to Putin. Although I'm sure he will be able to present even that as, as, as just the fact that people didn't vote because they are happy with the state of Russia right now. So I don't think it's a, it's a really important uh, election. Um, and I actually think we probably in, in Western media should try to avoid making the mistake of presenting it as a real election. Mm. It wasn't in the past and this time around even less. What's really important for Russia is what's happening in Ukraine. Um, yeah. whether, whether Russia gains the upper hand or, or whether it continues to face difficulties. And that if it continues to face difficulties, then Putin will be in trouble but not through the election. In any case, let's let's keep an eye on the turnout uh, and, and see what happens there. After the break, we'll be looking at India and Taiwan. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all of our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And on to India, which I think will be particularly interesting. General elections are expected to be held there between April and May. Um, and according to the current polling, the BJP, which is 
Prime Minister Narendra Modi's party remains in pole position. I mean, what would a third term for Modi mean for the country, Bruno? Yes, I've talked to Indian opposition politicians in my last visit um, three or four months ago. And in private, uh, they are quite gloomy about the, not just the profits for them, but the prospects for Indian democracy. Mm. What they usually argue is that Modi is still not all powerful uh, at the at the state level, uh, where the BJP in many uh, states still has uh, difficulties. Uh, but at the national level, there's really no significant opposition. Uh, the Congress is uh, uh, very diminished. Uh, the Indian National Congress, uh, and there hasn't really been the emergence of a powerful candidate to face Modi in the elections this year. And I think it might even be impossible because Modi just takes the air out of uh, uh, everyone else uh, in the opposition, but also in the BJP itself. So I do think there is a danger that if Modi wins again, he, he, the BJP will have another term to consolidate their power at the state level, and that things might become very difficult in the future. Now, to some extent, uh, people in the BJP argue, and I think it's true, that some of these dynamics are due just to the weakness of the opposition and its inability to pull its act together, to to consolidate its forces, uh, to appeal to the median Indian voter. A dynamic similar to what we've seen in Turkey, where also Erdogan's rise is connected to the, the, the sad state of the Turkish opposition. And this is part of the democratic game, one, one has to say. The opposition simply has to get better. Uh, and we see that um, there's still this dependence on the old traditional families, which mm -hmm. is something I talk about in the piece. Yeah. So Raul Gandhi has shown over and over again that he's not a very effective candidate, but he's still around after losing the elections last time because he comes from this distinguished political family in India. So, you know, Either the BJP consolidates its power or the opposition after another election uh, gets it, its act together. But things are moving in India, that's for sure. Yeah. And Ben, you've been looking closely at the numbers on this. I mean, is anything jumping out to you? Uh, yes, yeah, similar to what Bruno says, um, wherever Modi exists, no one else does. He, he sucks out the ability for others to to, to, to get in. Nevertheless, um, last election, for, for those for those unaware, let me get the numbers up here. You know, there's 500 and something seats for the Indian parliament. Last election, Modi's party came away with um, 200 and... Uh, 90 okay which is you know you get you get your majority there he's got the majority and right now he's probably cruising to some sort of re-election re with an increased majority although really we don't really know by much so he's got 290 now you need 270 to win a majority um polling puts in between you know 290 and 350 okay it's pretty pretty big variation there now the opposition yes they, they, they've lost uh, the past few general elections quite convincingly and um what what's ha what's happened uh with the oppositions if they've all bandied together to form an india party also known as india part india alliance rather um which is just a collection it's a real big tent of various parties you've got the main opposition the indian national congress um, who don't perform well on their own, but you've also got a bunch of communist parties. You've got the um, th those advocating for greater autonomy in Kashmir. You've got a, a ton of them, 
all with the rather united goal of defeating Modi. Now, in uh, when when you do look at the polling, the seat projections are pretty poor. Uh, for them, they're probably about a, what was it? It's like, uh, yeah, 100 to 200 seats out from, from winning. They're not really doing particularly well. Um, but I, I, w- I would note this. Uh, when you do poll people based on which party they'll support, you know, get your proportion, you know, share of support. Uh, Modi's alliance, the um, they, they come away with around about 40 to 45 percent of support and this new anti-Modi if you want to call it that uh, India alliance comes away with around about between 38 and 40 percent right now now based on those numbers alone that sounds rather close doesn't it but in C terms um, you know it, it, it is it is a uh, first past the post it doesn't really uh, work like that and uh, so yeah but the, the the you know if you just look at you know who people are supporting you'd think oh maybe it could be close but um I don't think I know India that well to say it could be. It's just based on these numbers alone, it does look it, but I doubt it. Okay, thank you. And I do think we should talk about Taiwan, which um, we'll be heading to the polls later this week. So before the magazine and before your piece is out, Bruno. Um, but how to deal with China is the central theme of the current campaigns ahead of this election. And Bruno, you spent some time in Taiwan with Taiwanese officials recently, didn't you? And you write, my most vivid impression from a recent visit to the island was that Taiwan represents a unique democracy because by necessity or choice, it has fully embraced the dangers of democratic rule. And can you explain what you mean by dangers there and also your impressions from your visit? Yeah, there's there's this old idea that democracies can function very well in normal times. Um, That's where they excel. But in dark times, in times of war, um, in times of conflict, internal conflict or external conflict, that perhaps you need another kind of arrangement. This is a very popular argument. And, you know, history hasn't decided whether this is true or not. Um, certainly in wars, democracies take their time to, um, to get their act together, but eventually they did in World War II. But the case of Taiwan is particularly difficult because what you have is... Um, a vibrant democracy that has to make decisions of an existential nature. Uh, have to make decisions about how many risks do we run that could lead us to a catastrophic war? Uh, what does it mean to be Taiwanese? Uh, are we responsible for a possible world thermonuclear war uh, if we don't play our cards well? And what impressed me in Taiwan was they're dealing with this very well, but it's a rather exceptional circumstances, and if that in our own democracies in Europe, uh, we are nowhere these sort of debates and these sort of discussions. Um, in Britain, I suppose, there's a lot of discussion about housing policy and what to do about it. Uh, in Portugal and many other countries in Europe, where, where Portugal, where I'm from, many other countries in Europe, the discussion is even more confined. Uh, sometimes the discussion is whether the VAT tax is going to be 23 or 24%, <laughs> because Brussels has... Uh, uh, assimilated many of the national powers. And then you go to Taiwan and the discussion is about do we risk the possibility of war in order to save our independent lifestyle? Uh, are we Taiwanese or Chinese? And this is incorporated into the electoral process. Now, I thought this was, in a way, very edifying for our image of what democracy can do. And that's how I finished the piece saying, you know, let's hope this lasts, but it's quite extraordinary to see that a democracy can actually deal with these issues. And then what is the alternative? I mean, my, my, uh, my take would be, my final take in the piece would be there. The more important the issue is, the more important that the method to 
decided be democratic. Mm. So it has something quite perverse about saying this is too important to leave it to the people. And Taiwan is proving that if it is important, then that's precisely what it should be left to the people. Absolutely. And I mean, there's just so many other elections that we could be talking about, the European Parliament um, and potentially elections in Israel and Ukraine as well. We don't have time uh, on this particular episode to go through them all, but I do encourage all of our listeners to go and pick up a copy of the next New Statesman where Bruno's piece laying out the implications of some of these votes um, will uh, fill you in with even more detail than we have in this conversation. But I just want to, as it's the New Statesman podcast, I just want to end on... um, Ben's idea of what he thinks, which one of these elections or or any of these trends could have the most implications for for UK politics, because there is some fear that our election could run concurrently to the US one. We don't really have major elections in one single European country pertaining to the European Union, but we have the European elections. And one thing you need to notice there is um, how many times have we done think pieces, op-eds about the death of the radical right or national populism or conservatism? It's really exhausting. Um, You look at the latest projections in the European Parliament, the far right are set to, you know, it's going to be their, you know, as a piece of the pie, the far right is set to, you know, get their largest share ever, you know, right now. They're set to increase the number of their seats in the European Parliament by 20 to 40. Um, that's big. And you you would have thought, you know, once upon a time, it was uh, the UK with UKIP, who had the radical right. They were the main uh, proponents of that, that type of politics there. No, no. What we're going to see in the European Parliament is quite a decent gain from the radical right there. And um, I don't think that 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 those ideas, those radical right parties are dead or gone. Um, I just want to see in which countries they do well particularly in Sweden, um, particularly uh, yeah, in Germany with the AFD, they've sort of sort of taken over where the old radical left used to be in East Germany. You look at projections in Germany right now and you, you'll always notice the AFD are winning literally rare. The radical left used to win. And um, I want to see how well, of course, Le Pen's uh, or whoever succeeds Le Pen does well in France. And is, is Maloney, Georgia Maloney in Italy, she's, she's, she's relatively popular now. Is she going to sort of get that confidence boost? Is she doing well? Is she going she gonna to sort of get a... Um, a sort of like a, an, an abstract mandate in a, in a European Parliament election victory. I don't know, but um, I, th- I think, you know, it's likely that Keir Starmer will be the next UK Prime Minister. It's likely that we're going to have another Labour victory. What that Labour, UK Labour government does in dealing with European countries who are, you know, more and more willing to entertain the radical right is going to be very interesting, you know. Um, it seems as though whilst the UK is rapidly choosing to uh, regret its Euroscepticism, um, other, other countries in Europe are, well, willing to in- engage some of it, aren't they? Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, both of you, for joining me. It was great to have you and Happy New Year. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Bruno Masaish and Ben Walker. You can read Bruno's cover story in the upcoming issue of The New Statesman and find it on The New Statesman website next week. This episode was produced by Catherine Hughes.